Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. Well, g'day everyone and welcome to the Scale Ups podcast where we unpack the secrets and strategies of scaling a business with the founders who've done it, the industry experts and advisors who can help on the journey and where we follow a group of first-time founders on their journey as they strive to scale. We've got a very clear goal uh, on this podcast. We're here to really help first-time founders who haven't run larger organizations figure out how to scale uh, successfully so they can fulfill the potential of their business, they can make you know, important decisions with, with more confidence uh, and maximize the, maximize the value they can actually create in the world um, through that business. I'm your host, Sean Steele. I'm joined today by Richard Katzman uh, from the Kaz Group, uh, which was sort of kaz.com up until probably 2010, I'm, I'm guessing, Richard, is that right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. And um, so just a bit of background on, uh, on the Kaz Group for people who uh may not know the brand it was founded in uh, 1926 when uh, when max uh, katzman who was your grandfather right invented the uh, mm, the electric yes. vaporizer uh, and it became you know the the world's leading global manufacturer of healthcare and home environment appliances like humidifiers and digital thermometers and, and heaters and you were selling those under licensed brands as well to the big box and uh, online retailers across uh, six continents uh, and from yes. our earlier conversations uh, Richard, you, you took over the reins of this business from your father in uh, 1978 and then over the next 32 years led the company through a growth stage from 4 mil in rev to 500 mil in revenue before it was sold to Helen of Troy in uh, 2010, who owned a whole bunch of other sort of you know, leading you know, beauty and health and home uh, and houseware brands in 2010. And, and you, you mentioned to me that some of those the key th- some of the key things that were happening in that business were the sort of expansion of product lines that sort of led to this growth, the expansion of product mm-hmm. lines, the development of international distribution, and the and the brand extension licensing that you did with brands like uh, Vicks and, and Honeywell and Braun. So I've, re- I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Can't wait to get stuck in today and to hear about your experiences and learn- learnings as you've been uh, as you've been scaling up. Maybe okay. as uh, as a way of setting a bit of context for our audience, uh, Richard, could you just give us a bit of a a walkthrough of a typical customer because you had an end customer you know the people who are actually buying the products at the end but who were you guys selling to who were your kind of key uh key clients and, and what sort of problems did they have and how did you go about solving those sure so our uh our customers were the uh, for the most part the big box retailers and the pharmacy chains um and eventually the uh the home centers like home depot and and lowe's in the, in the u.s um and so we basically became uh, their, you know, their category captains for those for those categories. I think Walmart or Target might have pioneered that that concept, where they really relied on their leading uh, manufacturer to not only advise them on which of our products to carry, but in in some accounts we were responsible for knowing all the market shares and, and even recommending some of our competitors <laughs> products right. that would be on the shelf um, and, and kind of managing the, cat- the category for them. And yeah. uh, as it got more sophisticated, uh, and I'm sure um, some, some of your listeners are also doing this, is to uh, sort of connect right in with, with their data center. Um, uh, Walmart uh, in, in particular was very strong on that, where they expected you to 
uh, you know, manage their inventory in your categories as well. So you need to know like what the what the daily sales were, um, what each distribution center was was uh, was was doing, and make sure you had enough inventory in the in this whole supply chain uh, mm-hmm. for them. Uh, and, and then also to to innovate and to make sure that you were price leader and a feature leader and and uh, just you know they they the wanted. Captain. They wanted the captain, yeah. <laughs> they wanted the captain. And so when you think about your the competitive landscape, it's not like you were the only people uh, in this business and the only people mm-hmm. with the, sort of in the playing field. How did you how did you differentiate yourselves from your competitors? Well, especially when I, when I started in the business, you know, we were a pretty small company and we were competing against Fortune 500 companies. So um, Sunbeam was a competitor. It's a, another big global brand. Um, and then there were... A, a, there was one company that was a division of of uh, Champion Spark Plug because, um, you know, the the Devilbus, uh paint sprayers sort of ended up being um, also a humidifier line, and uh, Gerber Gerber Baby Food had a, a a vaporizer humidifier division as well. So we we differentiated, I think, because this was. You know, the, the, it was a very small part of of their companies, and it was a hundred percent of our business. So we obviously cared um, a lot more about it and put you know heart and soul into it as a family business. And I think uh, I think that mattered. Um, in uh, you know, especially when my when my dad was running the company, uh, pharmacies uh, there were a lot of independent pharmacies, and they bought from wholesalers, and there might have been. I don't know, 50, 60 wholesalers. A lot of those were family businesses uh, and thousands of independent pharmacies. Uh, by the time we sold the company, there were very, very few independent pharmacies. And there's really Walmart and Target pharmacy uh, mm-hmm. were the biggest. And then CV, you know, there were two or three Walgreens and, and uh, um, you know, CVS in the, in the U.S. were the leading pharmacy chains and you're dealing with maybe a dozen people in the whole country that bought for for you know for every single store mm. um so you know it was very 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 different and being <clears throat> you know uh, if we'd stayed the kind of business that uh we were when i joined um I, we wouldn't have been able to compete in that kind of corporate environment because you know the whole world sort of shifted away from uh, you know, smaller independent businesses towards the, you know, the mega corporations. Mm. Wow. Well, you have, um, you have had some incredible experiences. Uh, and so, you know, to, to extract the, the greatest meat in a short space of time on this podcast, I'd really like to jump straight into some of those key moments. Um, and that we had a bit of a chat uh, offline about a few of these. And one of them, one of the, one that I thought might be quite instructive, uh, for our audience, many whom I know, uh, you know, end up in front of a customer, have to sell a dream and then have to run like <laughs> hell uh, to deliver. You, you, you mentioned something about a, uh, an experience that you had like that with Target. Maybe you can shed a bit of light on, on, on what that looked like and, and, uh, and how it sort of, how it fueled, fueled your growth. Sure. It's a, uh, so I, 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 I think in terms of, um, you know, not, not know if I qualify as a uh, pure entrepreneur since I didn't start the business. Um, but I like to think of it as like entrepreneurship, which is, you know, when you grow 
from from five to five hundred, and we were doubling every, you know, three, four, five years. You really felt like it was maybe six or seven different companies. You know, it was seven mm. seven plus doublings over that time. Um, and one of the ways we uh, we grew the, the business was, you know, finding neighboring product categories that we weren't in and then try to develop a product line and solve, uh, you know, try to improve on the category and, and leverage the, you know, the relationships and the business that we had in the brand. And, uh, we were, you know, doing very well with vaporizers and humidifiers. Um, and one of the products that's, uh, you know, similar on the shelf were electric heating pads. And uh, the you know Sunbeam I think had about ninety percent of the market at that point. And again, it wasn't a huge piece of their of their business, and they hadn't been innovating or doing anything interesting with the category. Not that it's intrinsically a very interesting category to begin with, but you know, no matter what the product is, there's always something innovative you can do. And so um, we we had the idea to develop some um, the first electronic controls instead of mechanical controls on it and you know made it a little bit safer um, and then did some um, uh, you know paid a little bit more attention to the to the look and feel and the design of both the packaging and the cloth cover and the, the design of the switch and just to make it a sleeker more modern product that and you know that be more appealing um, and you know hopefully grow the category a little bit and that all those things were kind of the sweet spot for target stores who really put a lot of effort into the the design of their stores and it was you know very uh, clean and open and, and modern looking and they really cared that the products on the shelf also looked like the rest of their store you know that it would be very appealing and they the buyer hadn't been very happy with the with the sunbeam product um and so we had designed you know we were in the middle of our design phase which didn't quite match up with uh with their um, uh, planogram timing. And so we had to present before we were really ready with finished finished product or even finished prototypes. So we had mock-ups of our new switch and we had front panels of the, of the packaging and we had cloth swatches of the cloth covers, not even full covers. Um, and we had partnered with you know, a, a company that, that would make the actual heating pad uh, unit for us. And the uh, when it came down to decision time, the uh, you know they liked everything we were doing, but they had to make a decision based on what I could show them. And they said, um, you know, I, I wish, you know, I wish you had a real product that I could decide on instead of just uh, you know all this nonsense. And I said, and so the only thing I could say was, you know, I said, you know, in a perfect world, we would have all those things, but this is what we have, and if you buy it from us, I guarantee we will deliver on time and and you know make you happy um and they bought it so wow <laughs> it was uh and then um i don't know five or six years later we were the um the category leader in that category so you know wow. from zero to leadership um but if you know at that moment if we hadn't gotten that account i don't know that uh that it really would have succeeded. Yeah, <laughs> so and you can imagine the, 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 mass yeah, we the number of times that we want, you know, we want to be professional in our businesses and we want to often, you know, sometimes we actually just have to do the best we can to build a minimum viable product, right? And then actually um, get it out there and get real feedback and get real uh, real testing done, which is, you know, 
is there a customer who's willing to pay you right now for this? If, if there is, it probably tells you you're on the money. Uh, but then you just go yeah. to run like hell. And I imagine that's a challenging <laughs> conversation to go back to the team with. Hey, guys, guess well, what? I know we don't have this product yet, but we do now. <laughs> We've got money, so you need to yeah. get on with it. Well, you know, I've, I've been involved with software as well. And, you know, with software, you know, you can fix it on the fly. And, and uh, you know, you, you, if it crashes, you restart it. With, with electrical products that get hot and can burn people and, you know, you put vaporizers and humidifiers risk, yeah. in, in, in babies' rooms and you have, you know, uh, a lot of electrical compliance and, and uh, you know, it's, it gets real very quickly. So, mm. you know, MVP means a whole another level of... Uh, of, of, of stress and pressure, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, absolutely. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about um, brand extensions? It sounds like the licensing, uh, the approach to um, you know really building out some of the product lines through um, brand partnerships or license partnerships uh, was quite a game changer in terms of the trajectory of the business. Can you tell me a bit about why you did that um, and how did it impact uh, the sort of the, the transformation of the business? Sure. So in, in categories like vaporizers and humidifiers where, um, you know, when I started, there were, you know, there were very, very generic looking, looking products. There were, there, they weren't even in full color boxes. They weren't really treated like consumer products. They were treated like sort of uh, like home health devices, like you'd find a, a bedpan or, or something like that. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that we did was start to treat it like a like a consumer product and so we had the customers were our, our retailers but our consumers were the people actually using the product and the ones you know that that had to make a buying decision in, in the store um and we thought you know we had a we had a nice brand um uh, pharmacists knew who Kaz was um all the, all the the retailers did and a lot of a lot of moms that um that their doctor had said you know your kid has a, you know the the croup or cold or flu you know you should get a, a vaporizer and run it in the room and they they would tell them to get a calves or they would go to so they knew who you know we sort of had brand right. recognition but not not really it wasn't a real brand and um and to build a true consumer brand is you know very very expensive and, and time consuming uh a process you know and you have to whether it's advertising or, or PR or, or any of those things, it's, it's, um, it's a serious effort. And our categories really wouldn't support that kind of investment in, you know, making a mega brand. Um, and then um, one day, and, and sometimes I think, you know, it's better to be, um, you know, lucky than good. You know, we got a call from uh, Procter & Gamble who said they wanted to come and meet with us about, about VIX. And, you know, we had done some private label, like so. Some of the retailers wanted their name on the box instead of ours, and and you know, there there wasn't a ton of margin, and and it just. Didn't, I said, well, if they're going to do private label, that makes no sense. Is oh no, we we don't want to do private label. We want to do licensing, and they had the idea that um, that uh, you know they had done their their research and they knew that uh, vaporizers and VIX would go very well because VIX had uh, their Vapor Rub product. That's I think. They had a statistic that it's in 95% of the households in the U.S. had one little, at least one little jar of Tub. Vicks Vapor Rub in their in their home. And um, we all grew plus, up with that product globally, <laughs> didn't we? And uh, 
it's it's everywhere. And uh, their biggest product though was um, Nyquil, the, the you know the cold, often cold syrup. And they wanted to sell more Nyquil. And the way to do that is to get more facings on the shelf. And they said, well, we have a small cough medicine uh, box on the shelf, and uh, but you have a you know a you know, big humidifier and vaporizer if that was a billboard if that said vix on it then that would be good for selling more nyquil he said so they said well you know you you make a uh, we will license you the vix brand so you can make a vix vaporizer you will make it the same way you're making everything now and uh um you will be doing the manufacturing and the selling and the distribution and the service you know we won't touch it We'll have approval over your packaging and the product, but it's it's your business, and you just pay us a royalty for that. And we didn't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea because nobody had done brands in or licensing in, in products like this. So we said, well, you know, we'll give it a try, and we, you know, carefully picked a a model and a price point that wouldn't cannibalize our existing sales because that was our. We didn't want to lose what we had if it didn't work out. And, you know, because we'd be paying this royalty and we'd be making even less than we were making before. And so we, from the first meeting until the first shipment was only 11 months. And that included negotiating the first license agreement that Procter & Gamble had done um, and designing a fresh design for this and designing the package and getting it all done. Um, and we thought if we did 100,000 units, that would have been a successful project. And it was, you know, be careful what you wish for, because um, if we could have made 2 million, we would have sold every single piece. Wow. Um, every, you know, whereas before I'd make a sales call on a big retailer and, um, you know, it would be, you know, you'd negotiate over a nickel or a dime in your in your price and, you know, fighting, you know, to, against your competitors want to keep this business and that as soon as we showed that product to the retailers they didn't ask even how much it was i said sure yeah that's obvious we'll take that and so it was instantly the number one product in the category and from there we just kept adding vix new you know new models of of different vix products each year and they instantly were uh, the leaders in their category and it was so successful that then they came to us and said, you know, we want to do VIX thermometers. And uh, we didn't know if that was a good idea, but, and we hadn't been making thermometers. So we, um, uh, we tried it. And, you know, within a couple of years, we were the leading branded digital thermometer manufacturer in the, in and the when country. You, yeah. uh, you mentioned, I mean, you, you were already in the category. You were like, well, I'll take a bet on this, but I don't want to lose my existing business. If it doesn't work, I need to be able to roll back to what I have. Did you mm -hmm. keep both products? In the category, did you sort of position the other product at a different price point with the next kind of elevated brand and keep your brand in there for a period of time or, or sort of in perpetuity? What, what did you do with the existing one? Yeah, so we were, we were really nervous in the beginning. So we, we said, you know, we'll, Kaz, the Kaz brand will be the entry price point and the best, but the, the, the good, better, best strategy will make the better the VIX product. Um, and so we tried it and it was, you know, just blew everything else away. Um, and then over the years, you know, we had CAS and VIX, and that that ratio just went from you know you know zero this way to zero that way. And by the time we sold the business, I don't believe we were selling anything under the CAS brand uh, anymore. Um, wow. So uh, yeah, if you type in CAS.com now, it goes straight to uh, the, um, to, to the <laughs> and you know to their VIX page and, and yeah. Honeywell page. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Wow. And so 
you know, in a transformation from a $4 million business to a $500 million business, obviously the, you know, the business is growing um, from a people perspective. And so, you know, some of the big uh, dial changes are often individuals, you know, you know, certain talent or capability that you had to bring in at different stages. Who were the, when you sort of think back, what were the kind of key hires that you remember? Like maybe, maybe the first one that really just jumps out, you know, a kind of key hire that really changed things because they brought a capability that perhaps you didn't have in the business and was necessary to be able to shift the business to the next level. Sure. So there were, there were, there were several. Um, I think the first real, but someone, my dad was running the business. He was very much a uh, um, do it yourself. He liked to, he liked to do the production, everything from production planning and inventory to sales, product design, you know, the, the, um, uh, you know, worked with the banks on, on you know, revolving credit lines, uh, all those things, um, and didn't really have any, you know, what you'd call, you know, hired gun professional managers in the company. And then, you know, I came in and my, my first job was, you know, to uh, build our first computer system. Um, and I did that. And I started to learn the business. And I realized, you know, I started getting involved with various, you know, all the different departments. So one of the first hires we made was a, a professional sales manager that, you know, VP of sales that could really be there, work with our sales reps and work with the, the retailers on a much more hands-on basis because it was becoming a, a year-round business. My, my dad would make one sales call in the beginning of the year and then never see them again till the following year and that that wouldn't fly anymore uh, and that sort of started to set the stage for building a professional team and probably the most transformational hire was um was a gentleman that we hired he had been working at in some some big pharma companies uh and he came in as our uh, uh vp of marketing um, and that was a a big deal because he was used to a pretty high level compensation package that included um, stock, you know, and he was working for public companies and that's pretty standard in public companies that you'd get options or, you know, uh, you know, a stock package that would vest over time. And we were a private company, family held, no outside shareholders. And, uh, you know, we developed a, a, a phantom stock program, you know, just so we can make that higher. And, that became a you know a pretty powerful uh, you know part of the compensation package because you know when you hire uh, top people you you know they they want some equity in the business um, and he just brought a whole new level of professionalism to the marketing and then you know and and became a marketing driven company where uh, marketing drove product development and customer relationships and kind of knit the whole thing together and. Uh, I give him a tremendous amount of credit for, um, he came in right about when we were doing, uh, the, right after we did the VIX deal, which was, and that actually was not just good for our, our sales and our, and our bottom line. The VIX deal um, put us on the map where people like, like, like this guy, um, uh, this guy Bob would really want to work in the company because he, he knew, he had worked at, uh, P&G, and then he had worked at, uh, I think it was um, maybe Pfizer or, or one of the, you know, another big company. And he understood the brand a lot more than even I did at that point. And he knew what he could do with it if he, you know, came into the business. So, it was, it, it was, so the stock, you know, the stock thing was important, but also, you know, having, 
having that license, I think, was um, was a you know recruiting aid at that time too. Yeah, absolutely. And what about um, what about funding for growth? You know, one of the things that's of course the most challenging for many businesses, depending on their kind of working <clears throat> capital and cash flow profile, is how do they fund growth? That you know, you had a business that was on average growing at what well, I think sort of sixteen to twenty percent a year. Uh, year mm-hmm. on year, so you know you have to be able to fund the growth. And some businesses do a great job in optimizing the cash flow so they can fund it themselves. Other people need to take on capital. Um, tell me a bit about uh, how you thought about capital and how you funded your your growth story. Sure. So um, for working capital over the years, um, we really just worked with a bank line, uh, a revolving credit line. It was a seasonal business, so during the summer when we were Building, building inventory and and uh, and shipping to, uh, you know, to the retailers. Uh, that would be kind of the high water mark of when we would, you know, pull down, uh, you know, close to the max on that on that line, and then uh, cash started coming in, in in the fall. And I guess reverse in your, mm-hmm. <laughs> your yeah, atmosphere. Okay. <laughs> um, and and that that worked for many years and then for capital needs you know we were a prime manufacturer for you know most of the time I was there so we had a factory in upstate New York um, we expanded that fa- the, the, the buildings a couple of times we built some additions and we uh, um, eventually put a whole plastic uh, molding operation in there and so for that we we had some um, uh, public private, packages that you know they, they'd give us um you know some some tax incentives and some other things so it weren't, wasn't really a cash injection so we 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 needed to come up with the cash ourselves on those things so we we worked with um some of the equipment we're on leases there's a lot of things you can do to you know to sort of spread out the, the payments on on capital expenses uh, so we didn't really take in any outside money until we did a big acquisition um this was in like uh, 2002 we acquired the uh, the Honeywell Consumer Products Division. So that was their humidifier line. Uh, they were the biggest in air cleaners and then uh, heaters and fans also. So they had four product categories. Then they had um, sales and offices um, in Europe and in Asia. Um, so it was, a, it was a collection of different divisions, offices, a couple of uh, factories that came with it, a distribution center. and we needed to bring in some outside capital for that. So we partnered with a private equity firm, uh, Center Partners, and uh, that became a um, good relationship. And it was slightly unusual in that the um, most private equity deals, they wanna take a, a control interest in the, in the business and uh, they only took a, a 20% interest in, in our, that was- they, they came in with a sort of defined uh, you know, mandate about how long they would stick around and when they wanted to get out? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, it was pretty typical of a, you know, they had a five to seven year time horizon. Uh, unfortunately, in the middle of that time horizon, um, like kind of the world economy collapsed and you know, we had to hunker down a little bit. Um, but the, uh, so, so it went, they didn't get out until we sold the business in, in uh, 2011. But mm-hmm. so it was nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, they did pretty well. I mean, they did like two and a half X, I guess. but. Um, it was spread over a longer period of time, so their their mm-hmm. IRR wasn't a home run, but um, mm-hmm. the money on money was good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, 
during that period, were there any, uh, I'm interested in, uh, you know, quite often uh, entrepreneurs find it might be particular books um, that have really influenced kind of key decisions they made or, or frameworks or methodologies or tools that they actually found quite instructive or helpful in thinking about how to build their organization. What influenced you uh, from that perspective as you grew the business? Great question. Um, there were, there were a, a couple of things come to mind. One was, um, uh, I guess, in the we we at one point. Uh, I'll back up a little. The I'd say the most influential, um, you know, uh, thought injections I've, I've 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 had in the business weren't necessarily from books, but it was from my participation in. Um, Young Presidents Organization, YPO, which is a large global organization of, of company presidents and CEOs. Um, and they have events and, and seminars and, and uh, small groups that you, you, know, you meet with, um, just a group of peers. And listening and, uh, you know, the stories I'd hear there or speakers that we'd bring in um, became you know, uh, very influential. So I'd go to one, you know, one, one event and I'd hear somebody talking about what they were, Oh, it was, I remember it was a, uh, they had an event at the at Toyota in Kentucky where they were talking about, uh, their, you know, how they manage their quality process. And, um, and I hadn't really, you know, really studied that area of the business as, as much. And it was, it was really eye-opening. I remember, you know, they had um, one of their VPs at the Toyota plant had worked in a General Motors plant uh, before, and he helped them design this new plant that they were, they recruited him. They're building this brand new plant in Kentucky and he's going through all the drawings. He's going to tell them, you know, how to do it. And he realizes that he says, Oh, you know, this, this looks great. But you know you're missing a really important area in this plant. I don't. I only see this tiny little area for rework, and you need big area for rework. You know the cars come off the line, and then you inspect them, and you find where the uh, you know the things that need to be fixed on it, the lights that don't go on, and the doors that don't close right, and you got to fix that. And they say, oh no no, we don't we don't do it that way. You know we we do it on the line, and if the thing doesn't fit, they stop the whole line and they fix it there. And then when it comes off, it works. And he was saying that can never work. And then of course you know they built the plant, and he's like, you know, now he's a convert, and he was you know bragging about how well that they do it. And so from there, you know, we brought in a quality consultant, and I think it really made a difference in not just. Uh, how we made product, but also how we, um, you know, we spent a lot of time on processes, how to, how to have better meetings. And it, it's, it's a, it was a mindset that I think I was able to bring in. Um, uh, another speaker I heard that, that had a, uh, um, wasn't so much, it was sort of a confirmation of, of, of something. So it was Tony Shea, who, you know, tragically passed away last year. Um, he was the founder of Zappos, the, the big shoe retailer. And he had, um, you know, their their company is was very uh, um, customer service focused. So, so even though they're an online retailer, they have an eight hundred number on every page, and they actually want you to call them. Unlike just about every other um, online retailer, um, and they his his thinking was, you know, we have you on the phone for eleven minutes or whatever, and if we do a good job there, you'll we'll have you forever. 
And so they only hired people that really were customer service uh, oriented. And so they had two different hiring processes. They'd hire, they'd, they'd interview for all the typical skill set and experience and, you know, all that. And if you were qualified, you went into the next round of, of screening and they'd ask you weird questions like, you know, on a scale from one to 10, how lucky are you? And I don't know, you know, one is like, you know, 10 is like, I don't know, things, good things just happen. And one is, uh, you know, I don't know, no matter what, like, um, nothing works out. Yeah. Yeah. And some people answer that. And then, you know, a couple of questions later, they give them a section of a newspaper and they say, just all we want you to do is count the number of pictures in this newspaper. And they like, okay, we're, they're testing my attention to detail or something. So they start counting the pictures. And then on the third page or something, it's a, it's a fake newspaper. And one of the headlines on one of the stories is you can stop counting. Now there's 31 pictures and you can, you know, write down 31, hand it in, you're done. And some of the people do that and other ones go through the whole thing to the very end and count all the pictures and, and write it. And then he said, you know, there was a, we found that there's a correlation, like the people who said they were lucky also read that headline and, and stopped counting. <laughs> and so, um, and so my, my moral from that is, or my lesson was, um, similar to the VIX thing, you know, you take, take the meeting, you never know what's gonna, uh, what's gonna happen. And you can come up with a three-year plan or a five-year plan. But especially in a in a fast growing business, um, those plans, you know, typically things happen and and new opportunities come up and that are usually things you couldn't foresee, um, or often are things you can't you couldn't foresee. You can't foresee when Honeywell's going to want to sell a division, and you know that tripled our the size of our of our business at that point. Um, you can't foresee when you know someone's going to call you and want to offer a license. Um, uh, or you see, you know, some, some new product or technology that that's around. So yes, you can plan, but my, my experience has been the kind of plans that you make, um, with three-year plans, five-year plans tend to be very incremental thinking. And, um, by the time you get there, the world is, has moved on. And, you know, like if you, you could be Nokia coming up with like, here's my new brick phone, you know, (laughs) or, or, uh, um, you know, thing like we own the whole cellular phone market like you know we're going to do different colors and we're going to do <laughs> cool shapes <laughs> yeah. and they didn't even see iphone coming and uh, and didn't think it was going to be anything so um yeah i think you know, the, and, uh, and, the days and, of the seven forget plan uh, are sort of long gone aren't they exactly and even in apple's history you know like steve jobs um you know he was just on a tour at xerox and he saw uh, the Xerox machine that that was the first one with a graphic user interface, and and that became ultimately the you know the Mac interface, which ultimately became Windows. Um, I don't think he in the morning when he woke up he wasn't thinking I'm going to reinvent you know the graphic interface. <laughs> mm. And I think it's so, that I think it's such a great illustrative example of the need to um, be able to balance the dichotomy at the same time of having. 100% certainty that you're going to succeed as a team and with your business and that you'll make it to somewhere that's positive no matter what. And yet at the same time, at exactly the same time, retain the vulnerability and the humility to be wrong, to be open, to find ideas, to change tack, to adapt and change and be flexible. And that sort of infinite flexibility without being random, but the sort of 
the openness to being flexible and not becoming, well, I've succeeded so far, so I clearly am the smartest person in the room and therefore I know exactly where we should be going. That's, you know, it's a sort of a dichotomy that every entrepreneur or, or, or entrepreneur um, has to balance at the same time, I think. In the, um, in the context of your, uh, of your period, you would have had some really challenging uh, times. I'm interested in what you would consider one of your biggest uh, mistakes or, or, or failures, whatever sort of you know, language you might use um, for yourself as a leader or, or with the business. You know, what were one of the biggest mistakes and what did it sort of almost cost you and what did you learn from that? Two things. So, like, probably the biggest um, thing that that happened that that risked the you know the the, the company. Um, you know, we were we were moving along with the integration of of the Honeywell business, and uh, you know, trying to figure out which parts of it were working and which weren't. And we knew when we bought the the business that um, there were parts that needed to be closed, and you know they were. It wasn't a secret, you know, they, they marketed it as a troubled company and, you know, for what it eventually sold for, you know, it, it was a fixer upper for, for sure. So we're, we're in that process and, um, the, um, and we hired, you know, fresh management team in, in Europe, um, cause we, we didn't have an office in Europe and now all of a sudden we had a pretty large office there. And in Italy, um, they had hired a new general manager to run that business, and he started putting up big numbers on air conditioner sales. And and it's a specialized market. It was a these are the sort of the split units that uh, not not window units. And and you know when you said putting was, up, you mean sort of forecasting big numbers or delivering big numbers? He was doing. He was selling. A lot of a lot of units, okay. and he yep. had a plan, and he and he was he's saying this is, the you know, uh, low hanging fruit. You know, we're gonna, mm-hmm. you know, we the Honeywell brand is strong, and the uh, the air conditioner market's big here, and we can do a great job. And so we invested in a lot of inventory, and you know, spent a lot of time in China working with the manufacturers there to develop the right products, and it you know, and it turned out that he. Um, he was just full of it, and you know we ended up not selling units, owning a lot of units, and uh, and these are very you know they were a lot more expensive than most of the products that we made. You know you could fit you know a container of digital thermometers might be a hundred thousand uh, thermometers or so or a lot, um, and uh, you know uh, air conditioners are large they take up a lot of room they they have a lot of inventory and so we got way over leveraged there um and it kind of like sucked down you know the you know the all the numbers in the company for for a year or so um and you don't want to you, you know you, you're not allowed to run out of cash that's like the worst <laughs> thing you can do not a good scenario. And, then we, and we had a lot of cash tied up there so that was um and so the, the lesson is you know just don't take people's word for it. And, and I would say like, and my dad would say this too. He said like his biggest disappointments in business were always people, people that he trusted or that he gave too much of, you know, too much trust to without really doing the diligence and, and holding people, you know, making sure that um, they were doing what they said they were doing. Um, I would say the corollary to that is I, you know, probably the biggest joys I've had in the business are, from the people I worked with uh, there, um, 
So, you know, that might have been a reason he didn't hire great people um, because he was mm-hmm. afraid of giving people authority. I'd much rather err on the other side and, and you know, have a great team, which is, which is what we, you know, ended up having. It's almost um, a sort of, it's not a either or, is it? It's an and, you know, it's sort of chicken and fish, not chicken or fish in that mm-hmm. uh, you need to be able to trust people and empower them. And you also need to have appropriate governance and, governance and checks and balances so that, you know, you don't miss stuff. And that doesn't mean that you're not trusting. It just means that you can trust them and empower them. And you can also have visibility and, yeah. and, and transparency and checks and balances to make sure that, yeah. yeah. Things don't fall through and the there, cracks. And it's, it's not so much like a mistake, I don't think, but, you know, my, I, in terms of like, like sad parts of the business also were people things where, you know, you were mentioning, um, uh, you mentioned before, you know, the, um, you know, the balance of, of running a tight ship, but also being open to new ideas. And so if you have the right chemistry with your senior team, you can come in and, uh, um, and uh, with, with, you know, you go to some YPO seminar, and you, have, and you say, "Oh, we're going to do this today," you know, and they weren't expecting that, and they like they hate when you go to these conventions or whatever because they know you're going to come back with some lots of ideas, <laughs> some nonsense. <laughs> and so to have to you know to have trust the other way, where they trust they trust you as the steward of the of the business or the captain or whatever um, that. Um, that you can bring in new ideas that they're going to listen to them and consider them and help you execute. And then also if they think it's a terrible idea that they have the, you know, the relationship to, uh, to push back and keep you from making a big mistake. Um, and, and uh, back to like the, and so that made it even harder when you, one of the, the tough parts about growing a business over a long run. And I was saying before, you know, you, it's like having several different businesses, several different careers almost in the same business is the team that you build at 50 million to hundred million is no longer the team that can run a $300 million global business. And, you know, we, we had to make changes there that were very painful for certainly for them. And for me personally, because I had, you know, friends that made, you know, really made my career and and helped the company that no longer were the right people for the roles mm-hmm. that they were in in that business. Um, and if it's any consolation to them, ultimately that was me because when we got to like five hundred, I was I was not the right person to run run that business. That you know, I, I I'm much more whether it's entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, or you know, just um, wanting to um, you know swing for the fences every now and then and, mm. and uh, you get outside investors and you get a big company and you get lots of levels of management and you have different cultures in different different areas that came from different places and um that was not my it's a different piece. my strength yeah. to, to to knit all that together but, and did you find um, that was the same experience in building from when it was you know say four to ten or four to fifteen and 50 to 100, i.e. the team that was there for the sort of 4 to 15 journey was not also the same team that could take it to 50 or 100, yeah. making those changes totally, all the way through, know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's your, your bookkeeper or you know, you know, somebody who's a great bookkeeper or controller you know, at, at the small company is not, can't be a CFO. And so you mm. end up, you, know, um, you start hiring above, above long-time people, which is awkward and you know, not, 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 yeah, 
not a great thing to do. But, you know, again, if you have the relationship and the trust, um, uh, they will support that. I think there's an opportunity to say to people that, you know, you're um, at, su- at some stage, if the business goes really well, the company is likely to out is too likely to, to grow around you. And that doesn't mean that you can't continue to grow individually and thrive in the company, but it just may not mean that you naturally take on the next level up or the next level up or yeah. the next level up, because actually we need people who've been to the stage that we're trying to get to before to help lead us to that stage. And if you haven't done that, that's not a failure on your part. It's just an experience set. And that's why different people have different gigs. Exactly. When you, yeah. when, you um, when you think about uh, some of those most challenging um, periods, who did you tend to lean on? Who was your sort of go-to? Was it uh, you know colleagues in your uh, YPO um, forum or small groups, or was it your um, your partner, your family? Like who did you tend to lean on when times got tough? Good question too. Um, and I ask that specifically because you know quite often it's a pretty lonely job uh, when you're at the top. You know you don't you don't always have a big remit of people that you can actually confide in about what's going on because there's only some things that you can talk to about to with the rest of your business and quite often that just means you you wear a lot of this sort of personal burden of everybody else's stuff and your your worries for everyone else well that is actually the origin story of of ypo um which was um a a young guy um his his dad he was in a family business and the dad suddenly died suddenly and all of a sudden he's you know probably you know in his late 20s early 30s and he's running a, a substantial business and he didn't have any peers that he could share these you know issues problems triumphs whatever um so we we created uh, ypo to be uh you know better presidents through education and idea exchange and one of the core elements of ypo are these forums where you have uh, 10 or 12 uh, peers that um, you meet monthly with total confidentiality and you can share these issues and um, and, you know, as much as we like to think we're the only ones who've ever experienced such a horrible thing happening in our, in our business, you know, chances are someone in their, you know, in that room also has had something similar and can tell you how they got through it or, 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 or what they did. And that extends not just to the business part, but also to, um, to family and, and, uh, relationships, your kids, you can, you know, um, you know, you, you share the good times and the bad times and it's a, there are people who that's the only part of YPO that they participate in. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been good. So, and, and, and a YPO is businesses of a certain, certain size, but there's YEO for smaller businesses. So probably, you know, the, the, the best advice I could give to people who are, um, you know, on the path that, that, you know, the scale up um, path is to find, one of these peer group organizations because you know it's uh people with similar experiences will you know it's it's good to hear that and to see how they handled it and then um you know i started we did you know we did quite a few acquisitions and and the licensing and you know it was meeting people you know at some of these events and um and I remember I'm saying like they're telling stories about what they're doing with their businesses. And I'm, and I'm at first I'm like, you know, I was pretty young and inexperienced then cause I'd only been in a family business and I think, um, wow, you know, that's, that's very impressive. And then I would get to know them a little better and say, 
I'm, I'm as smart as these people, you know, <laughs> I can do that too. And that inspired me to, to want to do, you know, grow the business and, and, and try different things and, um, you know, have the, you know, we bet, we did kind of bet the farm on the Honeywell acquisition and it was a big move. Um, but I knew that we could make it work. Um, but I think it was seeing how people had built very large companies um, in a variety of different ways. Um, and that they weren't superheroes. They were, mm. they were peers. Um, yeah. Now, and, and that said, I did meet a couple of superheroes and, you know, that are, that were just so, so smart and, and accomplished. And, um, and that was inspiring. And, you, you know, but you realize like, you know, that's a very small percentage. And, and most of the people that are building very nice organizations and businesses and coming up with great ideas are just, you know, they're just like you you can do mm -hmm. that <laughs> yeah and they still have family issues and they still have personal issues yeah uh i have a segment that i ask uh, all guests uh this question richard uh and the segment is called above all else so i want you to imagine sort of take yourself out into the future i mean you've already had a you know an incredible uh career to date but imagine you know you're sort of in your 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 later yearning years you've got a lot of wisdom you know tied up in that brain and you've achieved all the things that you wanted you started all the businesses that you wanted and you you feel like you've, you've given what you'd hoped um and the ceo of a global community the world's largest global community of you know founders that are probably still you know sub 10 million first-time founders haven't built a large organization before and they're sort of hungry and and curious and and uh, and open to insight and she offers you um, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to share your wisdom and she asks you for your three above all else's so she asks you to, to finish this sentence the three thing above all else the three things that you must get right as a founder if you want to scale are what would be your three things the three things that you must get right as a founder if you want to scale I think one is that you really believe in your mission so I think I, I was been thinking back um, when I was growing up in the in the in, in the company and and leading the company. I felt like it was the most important company in the world, right? and that sounds so ridiculously naive now, um, but I really believed it. I felt like we were making healthcare products and doing good things, and we had good building careers for people, and it was, you know, I, I felt much much. Uh, like we were much bigger. It was like the little dog that, you know, like barks at the big, you know, just goes down the street barking at the big dogs, <laughs> thinking that, you know, he's the big dog too. Um, so I think that, 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 um, you know, that belief in, in that what you're doing is important is, is essential. Um, um, and then, uh, you know, we've been talking about it. Uh, the, the people that you surround yourself with um, are make or break. Um, and one thing that I do, I do believe in and I, I, is that you try to hire people that are two levels above the job that you're hiring them for, that, that they can, if you're, you know, if you're going to hire a vice president, they should be able to be president someday. Or if you're hiring a bookkeeper, they, you know, they, they can make it to controller. Or if you're hiring mm -hmm. somebody, an hourly worker on the line, that they, they might be able to make it to, you know, supervisor or manager. Um, um, and uh, you find people who, who uh, you know, not not everybody wants to do that, but you know, screening for the talent and 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 the personality and the the fit. Um, and then the, the third thing is like you know, 
don't run out of cash. <laughs> it seems so, <laughs> seems so obvious, you know? I mean, like, yeah. I'm, I've been doing a lot of angel investing and, you know, all these businesses are, you're running, you know, you know, they all are losing so much money. And, you know, we, we made money every year growing up and that's like so old fashioned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're saying, how do you, know, how do you get outside capital? And say, well, you need it. You know, we, 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 we were profitable. Like, how like show me cash flow stipend. Why would I need one of those? Why not just know that it's negative? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was an investor in, in um, an investor in one business and, um, he's so focused on growing the top line, um, and he has a negative contribution margin on the, on the business, and um, so like he's it's costing him more money to get the sales than than you know than than they're generating in profit. That's before before all the other expenses in, in the business, and I'm just saying that doesn't make any sense to me, and you know, and you know, there's people telling him it makes a lot of sense, and so it might be just me. But, um, you know, if you can keep raising out, you know, round after round of, of, of capital, great, good for you. Um, you're going to keep getting diluted. And, and um, I've seen businesses that, uh, you know, they have a hot new technology or software or market or something happens and, you know, they're getting a, they get a big up round and they get greedy and they take you know, a uh, huge valuation for it. And then when they get to their next round, they haven't, you know, it, it has to be a down round or flat. And, and that makes it, that gets people grumpy or your former investors. So it's, it's not just being, you know, glib about the, the cash thing, but it's, I, I, I think having um, a, a plan for knowing where the, you know, ultimately where the value proposition of your, of your business is and um, doesn't have to be, you know, if it's a fast-growing startup, it's it's not going to be profitable right away. But there, there needs to be some sort of rational plan as to why you you know if you want to exit the business and you're going to have to convince somebody that it is worth you know, that. And and ultimately, ultimately, businesses ultimately, ultimately will be you know valued on uh, on, on on their profitability. Um, at some point, yeah, it's uh, some, some of the stories of you know, some of the businesses that are still uh, on big revenue valuations and still don't make any money. But at some point, this thing's going to turn profitable, I promise you. Yeah, and, they, and some of yeah, them have uh, big market caps. It, um, yeah, well, you know, you can, you can, issue, a, you can issue a token that, that doesn't do anything. That's and, right. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So, you know, so but probably I, I the fourth that, thing would be don't listen to me on these things because <laughs> clearly no, wrong I think about it's in, that. I think it's incredibly <laughs> instructive for um, – for you know, I, I meet many businesses that still that are in a space where they they absolutely are profitable and they should be doing cash flow planning, but they're not doing cash flow planning, um, and they just haven't had that management discipline before. They've never been exposed to it before, but it's incredibly important, especially if they're going to start growing quickly or growing faster. They've got to know that they can actually be able to afford that because, as you said, you turn off the the, the cash tap and uh, and you get problems. Well, they're incredibly, yeah. and, then, and that that can include, of course, you know, raising your you know, additional rounds or yes. going public or, or whatever. So I, mean, I want to make it's it about, sound it's like about you know, the forward visibility, so you can plan for that, yeah. right? And knowing when you're going to right. run out, knowing when you need to have those raises, right? So uh, as, as as sort of you know, down on three year plans and five year plans, as as I was saying before. I didn't, that doesn't apply to the, the cash plan. <laughs> I wanted to, have a know, plan you, for cash. I, I, I always wanted to be able to make payroll. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, well, look, those have been incredibly uh, instructive, Richard, and I really uh, I value your, your, your time and, and what you've shared with us today. I'd really like to acknowledge you. I mean, this is a business um, that you had some incredible generational history when you took the helm. So I'm sure that also came with its own pressure and its own sort of um, constraints and challenges in the early days. And then for you to be able to transform that company from you know from, from five four or five mil to to 500 through some really clear big strategic moves some that you didn't really plan out and some that but you recognized an opportunity and you went after it that's as you know that's as important as being able to identify the opportunities in the first place right and being able to mm-hmm. hustle and align a team and get stuff done and get it delivered and at the right quality and so i think you know your um I just like to acknowledge the way that you've led this uh, company to to continue to lead a business over that period of change and that size uh, change over 32 years meant that you had to reinvent yourself. To your point, you had five or six or seven careers over that time, um, mm. which meant you had to keep leveling up uh, on your own. So I just I really acknowledge you for the uh, the journey and thank you very much for sharing that with our uh, our audience. How can people get in touch with you if they wanted to follow what you're doing? Where do they where do they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Check you out on LinkedIn. Mess- message me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to hear. No problems at all. Great. That's it wonderful. Was a, it, was a, it was a fun ride. So, uh, Absolutely. Well, thank you so good. much, Richard. Folks, I hope you enjoyed the show today. A huge thanks uh, to Richard Katzman. Uh, and a couple of things before you go. If you got value from today's uh, podcast, please leave us a review on Apple iTunes. It, you know, it gives our team a big thrill. Uh, and of course, it helps other people find the podcast uh, like yourself. Uh, feel free to jump to the website, scaleupspodcast.com. If you pop your email in there, you will be first to know when new episodes drop or free tools and resources uh, that are under development uh, get released. If you've got questions about your own business and how to, you know, elements of how to scale up your own business and you'd like uh, myself or, or guests like Richard to, uh, to address those questions, please jump on the website, use the SpeakPipe widget uh, on the right-hand side of the page. And you can leave a question straight from your phone uh, via audio about scaling. If you are more of a social animal, feel free to follow us on the socials uh, on whatever your favorite uh, platform is at Scala, at Scalats Podcast. Uh, and there are full episodes uh, available by video uh, on YouTube. Uh, but before I go, please remember the only thing, you know, th- these are a challenging, uh, it's a challenging approach, you know, scaling a business. Scaling is hard, but the only thing that guarantees that you're not going to scale is actually giving up. So you have to stay unshakable in your faith, but uh, remain flexible in your approach um, as you've heard today from Richard so you've been listening to the Scale Ups podcast I'm Sean Steele look forward to speaking with you again next week thanks very much and thank you Richard thank you Sean G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, Seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.